Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing well, Sarah, yourself. How many have we done of these now? It's uh, getting up to be a big number. It is. We are, this is episode 28. Wow. It's been a great journey. That's like one a week. So that's over half a year. It is. Yeah. It's been, it's been a hot minute. It's been a fun adventure. Something to do during a pandemic. Yes. Yes, it is. It's been good to keep my mind busy through sitting at home. So it's been a lot of fun. We've got to talk to a lot of interesting people and learn about them and what they do and why they do it. Yeah, I've learned so much already. Yeah, hopefully our listeners have as well. Yeah, we have another awesome guest today. Yeah, Uh, we're excited to introduce Dr. Brett Major, um, who's one of our colleagues here at UNMC. I'll let him tell us a little bit about himself uh, if he's okay with that, David? Sure. Well, first of all, Rick, Sarah, thank you so much for having me in your podcast and to join my illustrious group of infectious diseases colleagues who've talked to you already. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm faculty in the College of Public Health here at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I'm a professor of epidemiology. And so my, my day job um, principally is, is the study of risk. I, I'm interested in how risk gets identified and characterized and, and how it gets assessed and pursued in risk management oriented to patient and community-centered outcomes, particularly related to emerging infectious diseases. I, I do that in the college, um, also with the Global Center for Health Security as a partner. And, and then a, a good chunk of my time, of course, is with the Infectious Diseases Division with Nebraska Medicine. And so I'm, I'm very happy to continue to be a, a practicing ID subspecialist. That's awesome. Well- yeah, there's a lot there. Sounds like a lot of math, a lot of science. Um, so we're going to have to get into this a little bit. Well, we, I stand ready. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you uh, become interested in medicine in the first place? Like if we go clear back to the beginning, was there yeah. something that sparked your interest? Well, I'm, I'm avoiding uh, discussing the tall grasses of the Everglades for you or, or anything uh, going back to my ancient history. But when, when I was in college, uh, my, my mother would occasionally listen to uh, National Public Radio. And there was a book written by B.H. Keene called MD. And the good professor Keene was a professor at, at Columbia School of Physicians and Surgeons. And, and he uh, had been one of these physicians who got looped into the, the World War II effort where everyone and their brother was somehow part of the war effort in, in those days. And he became a, a parasitologist uh, functionally, working down in, in Gorgas in Central America. And so he ended up later being in New York City working as a, as a parasitologist. And it was a great book that, that talked about his, his experiences 
in the in the in World War II and immediate post-war period, and then in New York is really one of the few people doing clinical parasitology in the United States and in his story. He was a very flamboyant character. Uh, I do not consider myself to be a flamboyant character, but that got me thinking a little bit about, about medicine. And, and then I, I applied to medical school as, as a senior in college and realized that I was just not ready, withdrew all of my applications and did something completely different. <laughs> and after, uh, after another career, uh, decided to, to think about it again and, and ended up here. Yeah, what was your other career, if I can ask? Well, at the time I was at the U.S. Naval Academy, and, and so uh, deciding not to pursue medicine meant I was going to sea. And, and so I, I picked a ship off of a board on, on uh, the, the first few weeks of my second semester of senior year and ended up on a cruiser out of New York City. Little known fact, we, we had something called the strategic home port concept in the early 90s. And so I, I was uh, battling the Soviet threat and, uh, and other issues back in, in the early 90s. And I was a, a surface warfare officer. Yeah. Well, thank you for your service. Yeah. And now you have sea legs, right? Uh, I, well, uh, to an extent. <laughs> Everybody, unless they have a, a, a deep vestibulopathy, eventually gets seasick. But yes. <laughs> I can tell you it doesn't take much for me. <laughs> So when you got into medicine and now you're pretty specialized in what you do, was this always your career path or did you kind of fall upon epidemiology and the infectious disease part of things? Oh, like most things in in life, every (laughs) incremental event seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, I was uh, a medical student at a school that had one of the the great parents of parasitology, the great professor John Cross, who uh, started life as a a corpsman at the end of World War II in, in Southeast Asia and ended up getting involved in how the the Southeast Asia World Health Organization offices came up and became a, a great parasitology professor at the University of Alabama. And so that was part of the milieu where I did my undergraduate training. You might hear some whining in the background. That is uh, 70 pounds of kinetic affection, my, my rescue husky. I'll, I'll let him out here in a minute. Um, and then my, I, I went looking for a research project and, and the, the very, very patient vice president of research look, took one look at me and said, oh, you're going to need some help if you want to do research and handed me over to some very experienced, actually, tropical medicine and tropical public health and infectious diseases researchers. And so I ended up doing my medical school research, actually, in HIV molecular biology and functional immunology. And, and so that, that started it along, along the path. And, and an interest in immunology eventually led me to, to look at those subspecialties that do the most in that space. And that's infectious diseases, critical care, rheumatology, allergy, and immunology. And and I ended up um, selecting infectious diseases, mostly because uh, uh, a friend of mine who had had been to my my college uh, and later followed the path ahead of me um, told me I had to do it. So I I, I said, yes. So there, there you are. (laughs) <laughs> it just sort of happened. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. So in studying tropical diseases, what kind of is your kind of things that you have looked at specifically? And, and I'm curious also where you might have gone to try to get uh, boots on the ground and see this in real real world action. Well, I, I, I tend to orient towards 
risk as experienced by patients and communities. So I, I, I've always tended to shy away from actual focuses on on individual threats and individual pathogens. Although my my early research really stayed in HIV. So in addition to my medical school activity there, I, I ended up working with uh, Dr. Mary Marovich, who, who is a great functional immunologist who, who likes to make dendritic cells scream in dishes. And so I did a bit of that uh, as, uh, as an infectious diseases fellow, and then eventually got interested in bloodborne pathogen work. And so became very interested in, in how bloodborne diseases were experienced within the defense department, particularly as it might relate to the walking blood bank. And so I, I did a bit with HIV and, and also with viral hepatitis in that context. And then about that same time, I ended up uh, programmatically running an, an activity called the Military Tropical Medicine Course. And so I was essentially the person responsible for programming for tropical medicine training and education for the Defense Department. So that led to um, a lot of longitudinal activities and in, in mostly in South America and Africa and a little bit in Central America and, and later Asia. Um, and so I've, I've been uh, a lot of places because I'm old and old people know stuff and have done stuff. Um, but so I, I think a country list would be a little bit, a little bit hard. Uh, and, and then gradually, um, I, I continued to get interested in sepsis and emerging infectious diseases. And then in 2014, with, with the Ebola virus disease epidemic in, in West Africa, that, that sort of uh, forced a, a little bit of a pivot. I, I had not really worked in the high consequence pathogen space per se. I mean, certainly most high consequence pathogens are zoonotic and associated with the tropics more than in other areas, although some are cosmopolitan, like pandemic influenza uh, threats potentially. Um, so that that resulted in, in more and more of, of the high consequence pathogens being part of my remit. Did you go to West Africa during the Ebola uh, outbreaks? I did. I did. I, at the time, I was I was on loan to the World Health Organization from the Defense Department from the Navy, and I was uh, seconded. It's actually part of the way that UN agencies staff, they hire their own people, member states, loan people, and then there are other mechanisms. And so I, I was a laissez-passer carrying medical officer for WHO for a couple of years when that happened. So I ended up getting involved in a couple of, of larger events. Um, the West Africa event was, was one of those. Yeah, I just finished reading Crisis in the Red Zone and you were mentioned in that book. Oh. So it was very interesting read. Um, I am curious on um, your experience while you were there during the Ebola outbreak. I, I'm not sure this podcast is long enough uh, for well. that. <laughs> I, I will acknowledge to all listeners that the our, our kind hosts here neglected to send either coffee, beer, or a case of wine at my door. <laughs> so it, it's in the mail, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. The Amazon drone might drop it off. I'm cognitively and chemically and time-wise uh, ill-prepared Ill to talk much about that. I, I did write a book about it, and it's called A Year of Ebola, and it it's uh, very cheap, and you will quickly think less of me once you read it. But, but I, I recognized in, in the process that 
that the way that we structure guidelines, I mean, we see, what I'm about to say, we see in regular clinical practice as well, the way that we structure guidelines and, and the way that we structure procedures and, and mechanisms for people to do what they do, whether it's in the hospital or in the field, tends not to recognize the realities of what people face on the ground. And when you're, when you're back in your own health system, there, there's, there are compensatory mechanisms for that. We know our own health system. We know our own community. We know that language and everything else. So I, I just felt that, that people who are new to deployment or hadn't done it for a while or, or just wanted commiseration um, might, might need a frame of reference when they get on a plane. So, so I wrote a cheap rag and, uh, and, and it's out there. But yeah, it was a busy year. We happen to have at Nebraska Medicine and, and UNMC um, two very experienced field deployers in special pathogens. We have Professor James Lawler, who's of course the Executive Director for Innovation and International Programs for the Global Center for Health Security, who had done sepsis research for quite some time, had been the Defense Department liaison and, and an active researcher at the National Institutes for Health um, Center for, for doing high consequence pathogen research. And, and had been in, in uh, I believe, a Marburg outbreak previously in Uganda. Later, he was he, and, he was there with in one with me, <laughs> but he also deployed to West Africa. And of course, Professor Yana Broadhurst, who's the director of the Nebraska Biocontainment Clinical Laboratory and the Emerging Thing Pathogens Lab and, and other roles, she uh, was an incredibly uh, important asset for response in Sierra Leone where she was with Partners in Health, and she literally led the interagency analysis for rapid testing for Ebola and did just a huge amount of work over that year there. So actually our institution, in addition to its legacy in receiving those in quarantine and isolation into Omaha, uh, which is a great commitment by the local community, there, there also happens to be some field experience. So you talk about high consequence pathogens, Ebola being one of them, and so I think one thing that the last two decades have shown different than when you and I were in school is that people in the middle of the country in the United States should care about these things, right? I mean, because it it showed up in Dallas, um, SARS showed up in Toronto. I mean, these things can happen, right? So we do have to study these things and, and, and have a global knowledge of what's going on. All things are local, ultimately. You know, SARS-CoV-2 is a high consequence pathogen. I, I think one need only look at the total death count to appreciate the massive preventable death that's occurred over the last couple of years. And regardless of one's views on, on the reality and impact to communities and families from those deaths, the economics are clear. And, and so I, I was on the, the WHO priority pathogen panel and also the methodology panel for, for doing that list that they used to publish from about 2015 through 17. And, and when, we, when we thought about that and we thought about what goes on a list, there, there are the pathogens that, that lead to consequence for patients that are severe. There's the threats that disrupt communities and economies. And, and it almost does not matter really, other than that there is an effect that matters to households and communities and families and, and, and that these things are, are understood. And these things can be very, very local. You know, in addition to SARS-CoV-2, we're, we're in a fine area of tick-borne disease. There are bunyaviruses around. There's, it was the Midwest that gave us the, 
H3N2 variant influenza a few years ago that ended up in a global report and, and resulted in a lot of scrutiny. Um, and so these things happen, happen anywhere. But I think one of the utilities of thinking about risk management and high consequence pathogens is it does force one to think about what one does every day, right? And it really looks for those aspects of how of how we think about risk and how we can avoid cognitive dissonance in our execution of infection prevention control practice, right? So early on in the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, I was in Guinea and in, I was sitting at, at a table with, with uh, their, their deputy minister of health. And we were talking about, I was there early, it was, it was the end of March. And, and we were talking about what the first uh, 2014, we were talking about what the first case was. And he, he was just starting to get some insight on the first case. And the, the first case they thought was a toddler who came in with a profuse diarrhea. Well, if you're in Guinea and you have a toddler with a profuse diarrhea, the first thing you say is, oh, well, yeah, toddlers often <laughs> have a lot of diarrhea. But if you have a lot of diarrhea, you think cholera. Mm -hmm. And so this clinic looked at the, the child and intervened very well. The child, I believe, survived. And they, they did appropriate, safe and effective care, syndromic application of strategies for the patient and for infection prevention control practice with universal precautions. And none of the initial Ebola virus disease cases were from that clinic. And so it's, it's a nice reminder to, to uh, avoid apathy to have vigilance, to do continual risk assessment and, and to use the basics and not to get hung up on the, on the higher echelons, the escalated application of resources that happen, for instance, at our national quarantine unit or the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit. Those kinds of assets are important, but they should not be, they should not be distractors against the fundamental value of doing the basics. So with your risk uh, uh, discussions and things that you do, I imagine you do a fair amount of education. I, I am a principally faculty in the Department of Epidemiology. And, and so I, I, I teach our, I, I constructed and I teach our infectious disease epidemiology theory and methods course. It's, a, it's an advanced um, public health graduate course. And that's principally MPH students and PhD students. The PhD students are in DRPH students. They can be in epi or or uh, sometimes in other disciplines. And I, I also have the pleasure of, of mentoring uh, some MPH and some really fantastic uh, PhD epidemiology students. Now, is the, are those students all here or are they, um, is there online ability to do these things or? Yeah, it's a great question. We have both in-person and online Masters of Public Health Opportunities. Our PhD program in epidemiology is on site. And, and so there is an expectation, at least for the first two years of the principal coursework before advancing into the thesis stage of, of being in Omaha, but our doctorate in public health in epidemiology, as well as our doctorate of public health for emergency risk management are, are both available as online degrees. There also is an opportunity in the college for an interdisciplinary PhD program that can be done online. So, so I, I'm, I'm on a couple of, of PhD committees 
shared by others um, with sharp students who, who are working in federal agencies or, or nonprofits and, and pursuing um, a, a curricular track that is uh, more targeted towards avenues of discovery an understanding or methodology associated with the work that they do every day. So there are a lot of educational platforms available in the college. And I think increasingly we'll, we'll see crossover opportunities with the College of Medicine as well. The College of Medicine has some fantastic degree opportunities on site. Um, Dr. Lawler and Professor Lowe and Dr. Broadhurst and Dr. Santarpi and others um, have, I know have been, several of them have been on this podcast and, and there's actually a program um, a fellowship and biosecurity and, and health security, I know, and, and some other opportunities as well. Now, are many of these opportunities unique to things that are at UNMC because of the special faculty that you have that you talk about, as well as some of the experience that we have with the biocontainment unit and the, the global center and whatnot? Or are these things that you could get, you know, other places? Well, that, that is a loaded question. So uh, <laughs> do I think that we are unique? Sure. Um, do I think that we are um, the only people who do this sort of work? Of course not. That would be devastating. There are 360 million people in the United States and 7 million people <laughs> on the planet. And, and we just don't have catchment or bandwidth for, for any of that. We happen to be part of the national and international conversation. One of the really interesting things I think that the Global Center has done relatively um, steadily throughout the pandemic is maintain its connection with clinical sites internationally that are reference sites. And we learned a lot of lessons very early on before we had experienced patients back when we were, we were part of the initial quarantine efforts for SARS-CoV-2 because our friends in Singapore and in South Korea and in China were on the phone with us and we were talking every week about things like proning. We were early adopters of proning ahead of a lot of other centers in the US because we have good smart colleagues who had direct experience internationally and were able to let us know and we believed them, you know. They, um, but no, I, I, we're, we're unique, I think, in our bridging of clinical and public health activity relevant to practice. I, I think that is a unique facet of the way that we've structured how we work. I mean, we have Ali Khan as the Dean of College Public Health, right? And, and we have a really strong voice and service in Nebraska medicine, and we have this great GCHS crew. And I, I think that that just reflects the way that we can approach a problem maybe a little bit more holistically than some of our partners. But all of these other places that do it are great, and they're our partners. It's just that their vantage is slightly different. So I'm interested in working with the WHO and some of these other global organizations. Um, do they view the emerging pathogens differently than um, some of our more local organizations? I think the mechanics of risk management are pretty obvious. I think we pretend they're not, but they're, they're pretty obvious. One needs the whole of a community to recognize the problem. One needs to recognize that it is everybody's problem. And we each need to take our measures both for continuity and for management directly of, of the problem. And that, that is a universal truth in our health emergency and disaster risk management. It's true in disaster risk mitigation and in that movement. And it's, it's true in business continuity and critical infrastructure issues 
um, all over. So that that doesn't change. Um, what the WHO does fundamentally as an agency is it convenes and it facilitates access, right? If one wants a lot of technical depth to be able to do work and guide work, one, one goes to CDC or RKI or European CDC or China CDC, right? There are technical houses that are much larger that, that do granular technical work. One goes to WHO because of their ability to, to bring stakeholders together to discuss problems. Well, I had a question I was going to ask you, now I forgot it. Of course, it's that trouble with adulting, right? Adulting. <laughs> what is this word adulting? It's being an adult. I, I have a deep problem with my, my distance from millennial lexicons coupled with my living as a seventh grader. I'm basically 12. And so the combination of those two things means I really should not answer that question. Yeah. The only reason I hear these words is because we have, you know, children that are around that age. And, and so it's, uh, but the, it's definitely uh, puts you in a certain demographic. I think when you use words like adulting. Yeah. My, um, yeah. My, my children are Gen Zers and, and they, they have, they have no truck for the millennial lexicon. It's, it, I think there's been a complete, a complete rejection uh, as it's moved across the generational divide there. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting stuff for sure. Now, uh, one thing you talk about risk management and risk mitigation, it sounds a lot like what people use for like insurance. So it sounds like a lot of math and actuarial stuff and computer programs to figure things out. So how much, uh, you know, and obviously an epidemiologist uses, you know, science and math. Um, that's, that's key. How much of that do you use like in, in your analyses or day to day or anything like that? So I, I do have the usual statistical technologies and, and I, I did start life actually as, as, a, as a mathematics major. Uh, so I, so I, do, I do kind of live in that headspace, but, but the conversation about, about risk, it is similar in health to the conversation in corporate America and everywhere else. And, and it, it may lead to analyses but, but it is really a basic conversation about core interests. You know, what, what are the core interests that we hope to identify and attain, sustain, protect? And what resources are we willing to apply to, to be able to do that? And, and those conversations are not complicated. They're just painful because people have to declare themselves when, when they state those interests. And, and then one, one has to decide whether or not actions will, will be applied with integrity to, to how one may have, may have stated what their interests are. Uh, we, this is a deep problem in health emergency and disaster risk management is that when we must manage an event like SARS-CoV-2, everyone gets involved and it is very difficult in health, everyone gets involved. And it is difficult for folks to stop and decide what the common interests are. And it's even more difficult in health to pick on us for a minute, to recognize that the common interests are not our bed capacity. The common interest is 
really whether or not in this household over here, they, they don't decapitalize, right? The parents don't die and they can go to work and they don't lose their jobs and they don't lose their mortgage and their kids are happy and healthy and thriving. It's not the way that we talk about our interests that tend to be linked to how we're taught to manage and help. And, and so consequently, we, we see these scenarios where health sees an opportunity to, to say something and we do and we should, but we do so in terms of those things that we're trying to, to manage in healthcare practice and, and it's completely unrelatable. And, and that has been a, a deep risk communication challenge we've had since, since the very beginning. And it, it, begets, um, it, it begets extremism on both sides on how we view the problem. And, and it, it causes a lot of variability and confusion. It, it complicates the way that people think about uncertainty. And, and it, it just makes it hard to mobilize individuals to, to do things that, that make sense for them. Um, and we, we also tend in the way that we talk about our interests in health to allow those stakeholders who have decision authority and resources outside of health a free pass on, on owning those interests and how, and how to mitigate them because we let them say, oh, well, that's, it's a health decision. <laughs> no, it's a community decision. Do you want the 60-year-olds in the workforce who are the only ones who know how to use this entire line of technology meaningfully to survive the pandemic and to keep, <laughs> to keep small businesses open. It, it, really is, it really is a deep problem. And, and it, it's important, I think, that people, that all of us remember that the real risk conversations are not so much about the analyses and much, much more about, about understanding what we actually want. Because if we can actually agree what we actually want, and we're transparent about the choice that we're making and not obfuscating or obstructing the opportunity to see the risks, well, then you can actually have a conversation and people are smart and do a lot of advanced processing in their head without any analytics that I do and can often come to reasonable conclusions, right? Conversations early on about whether or not children got infected by SARS-CoV-2 was the most absurd thing I'd ever heard. We've never, ever, ever seen an infectious disease where a child is not an amplifying host, name one. And when they do amplify, right? I mean, obviously there are a couple of exceptions that don't amplify people. They always do. Of course, children matter. Of course, schools matter, right? Of course, if you have 70 year old teachers with rheumatoid arthritis on immunosuppressives, they're gonna die. And guess what? They did in the United States. And so if you make a choice and you make certain choices about schools or something else, simply acknowledge what the trade-off is. Well, the trade-off is this cohort of your labor force will need to do something different and they won't be available. Fine. And just be transparent and anchor on core interests that are actually anchored in communities and not in health systems. Yeah, that's all fascinating stuff. Now, that, uh, along those lines, we we'll go back to, let's say, January of 2019. You know, we all knew that something was going on in China, trying to figure it all out. You guys have contacts all over. You were hearing things, everything else. And you and your colleagues over in public health and the Davis Center were doing all kinds of projections, right? And obviously, you didn't know all the answers to all the questions that you had to put into these things. And these have evolved over time. Um, um, 
and, 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 you know, using what you had, maybe you used pandemic influenza as kind of a number to, to do things. You guys gave numbers of this is how many cases we might see. This is how many deaths we might see. And so if we had an answer to those questions that you were just talking about, you can move that dial, right? And that's what everybody was talking about at the beginning. And somehow it seems like along the way, some of that message got lost. People decided to ignore the core interests. And so if, if you know, and, and it's, it's amazing how many of the predictions that you and your teams had done that have actually come true, right? I mean, you guys were, have been very dead on, on, I don't mean to use dead on as a, as a pun there, on how many cases there were going to be and the, and the fatalities and, and everything else. Um, and, but people in politics got in the way and made decisions that continued to put people at risk that if we would have done those core interests, like you're talking about, we could have made a bigger difference in this. Don't you think if we look back on this, let's say we're going to look back on this in you know, a decade or other people will look back to it in 50 or hundred years. And hopefully they learn more than we did from the influenza pandemic a hundred years ago than, than what we applied here. So I, I, met, I mentioned that I, that I wrote a boring book and, and in that book, I, I, I talked about related issues in the countries where I worked during the Ebola emergency. And I thought that I was all smart, that I had gone down and I had seen the deep underbelly of how, of how politics and financial interests and everybody else kind of how, the, how agendas collide when around rather than upon interests that you want to achieve. And I thought I was very, very clever. And then I picked up a biography of Jon Snow written by Sandra Hempel. And Jon Snow, when he was dealing with cholera in Britain, a hundred plus years before I ever got involved in infectious diseases, in addition to my realizing I'm a deep deeply underachieved. <laughs> he was kind of an incredible person, right? He was uh, the same story, the exact same stories. I could have replaced British names with U.S. international, Guinean, Sierra Leone, and Liberian, <laughs> Nigerian names in places, and the stories would have been exactly the same. And then I picked up a biography written by Stephen Freed of Benjamin Rush, about yellow fever and cholera. And it was the same thing all over again. And so, uh, sure, in, in 10 years, we, we might re reflect on these, but our habit has not been to do so. Our, our habit ha has been to um, breathe a sigh of relief and focus on moving forward. And we have had revision, reconstruction, redesign, reapplication, reinnovation, uh, reestablishment, realignment conversations around pandemic and general health emergency and disaster risk management every few years since probably 2001 mm -hmm. and possibly earlier. And, and so um, I'm not sure uh, how people will, will view all of this in retrospect. Ideally, Ideally, they'll, they'll view it in, in, in retrospect as, as the increasing body of evidence that, that perhaps we, we need to orient differently. And one of the ways to orient differently is to remember that it's not about health. This will all make a great research project for a future student.
in 10, 15, 20 years? Well, I have a friend, uh, Dennis Shanks out of, out of Australia. He runs, he runs their tropical medicine Institute down there. And, and he, he has developed uh, quite an interest over many years of writing about Spanish influenza in 1918. And he continues to do so. <laughs> so uh, he's well-published, well-spoken. It's fantastic to read his stuff and, and to, have, to have a presentation by him, but, but we're, you know, we're several years out from the Spanish flu. Yeah. Just a few. Another illness that presumed started in the Midwest, right? Uh, we do have our, our legacy in the Great Plains regarding, uh, <laughs> regarding influenza in 1918. Yeah, a little misnomer with it, calling it the Spanish flu, even though it might have started at Fort Riley, right? Mm-hmm. Very convenient. <laughs> well, we were, we were mad at Franco then, so, you know, it worked out. It did work well. Politics always comes into play. <laughs> So switching over to something a little bit lighter, um, if we had listeners out there that were just starting out in their medical career and they weren't really sure what they wanted to do, what advice would you give them? In terms of deciding what it is that they want to do in medicine? Mm-hmm. Follow your bliss. That is, my, that is my recommendation. Love that thing, which is the core technical anchor of what you do stay current in that technical anchor and, and take it forward with you. So when group used to come to WHO to explore global health, global health is a, is a deep culprit of the opposite of this sometimes. And so these groups would come from great houses, very smart students with fantastic faculty, and they'd come to WHO, they'd come to the Mecca and, and I, I would get dragged out um, because I, w- I was available and they weren't paying my salary, why not? And, and I would go and I would talk to these groups about, about global health. And the first thing I said that usually got me in trouble with the global health faculty <laughs> was I would, I would go around the room and I would say, well, well what, what's your technical background? From what vantage are you entering this conversation about global health? And you have a dentist and a nutritionist and a, you know, the complete allied health spectrum and a nutritionist and my, my, and the question immediately would be, well, how, how do I, you know, how, how do I be effective in global health or make a difference or what should I do? And I say, well, you, you should really stay current as a nutritionist because I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that a lot more, a lot more harm, frankly, comes from malnutrition globally than my, you know, rare emerging diseases. And we really need nutritionists. And if we're in a room together, you, you know, the way we bring cooperative interdisciplinary value to solve hard problems is, is, is we have a, a technical frame of reference and tools to be able to move questions forward. And we don't all become, become individuals who, who, are, who are talking from, a, from our one dictionary um, you know, with, a, with a, the same body of thought. So, so I think no matter what you want to do, whether it's global health, whether it's health in your community, whether whether it is developing the, the best procedure that is most effective at referral hospitals, whether it is just consistent, valuable, valued care in the community in which you live as the local physician, just find your technical anchor that you love and embrace it and stay current in it and remember that it's there for you and get back to it frequently. Great, great advice. advice. Yes, great advice. So outside of all this global health, medicine, risk management, mitigation, what does David Brett Major like to do with his time? I see a bike behind you, so I assume you're a, a, a cyclist. Well, I uh, that 
Oh, that's my bike of shame. So <laughs> years, years ago, after after uh, my fellowship, I, I had the opportunity to go back to graduate school a little bit, and and I I was there, and my one of my classmates was a triathlete, and and he he tried to get me back running again. I had hit the point in my in my my age where I could no longer uh, run without feeling like I had run, and uh, and so we were on. He was on a a, a mission to try and get me to do triathlons with him. Uh, I did end up running again. I did get a fancy bike to be able to do it, but admittedly, I'm a little afraid to uh, ride my bike on the streets of Omaha. Fear is not usually a thing for me, but um, Omaha drivers are a real thing. Uh, the, uh, the, my, my um, children and I, we've adopted the three second pause at green lights, right? Because you almost invariably have three cars, one per second that go through a, a red light once it's um, initially turned. So we're, we're very careful. So I don't do a lot of cycling here, but, um, but I, I have a 70 pound rescue Husky. Um, I have uh, two fantastic children and, uh, and a wife and a yard and all of the, the usual things for, for households to function in modern society. Yeah, I think there are some good trails. I'm not really a big bicycle rider either, but there are some good trails around town that people ride on. I agree. The streets are not really the best place for cyclists, uh, um, especially, uh, uh, you know, out on these. We have lots of highways that the speed is just not good. I I really think that it's an Omaha thing when I, we do some work out out in western Nebraska, and when I'm in western Nebraska, people people seem to drive in central Nebraska, maybe even just an hour outside of Omaha, people seem to be driving a little more reasonably. It must be the the, the energy of the city that propels them. Must be. I don't know. I live in a very small town outside of Omaha, on the Iowa side of the border, mm-hmm. and it's pretty slow here. So, um, are you? reading anything right now? I, uh, what have I read recently? I have, uh, I recently read uh, a, um, uh, an interesting, I, I got interested a while ago. Uh, my father got me interested in reading biographies that happened when I was in college. And, and so I, I, I like reading biographies. It's a, it's an interesting way for me to to understand history and how, how events happen, even though I'm not particularly what's called a great man theory person um, in terms of how history moves, it's just great to have a frame of reference with which to, to view the world. And then uh, several years back, I got interested in some of the parallel biographies. And the first one that I really engaged like this was a, a book by Doris Goodwin called Team of Rivals where she did basically interwoven biographies of Abraham Lincoln and his three rivals for the 1860 Republican nomination for president and how they later entered his cabinet and were involved in and participated with him in managing the US and and the Civil War. It was a really fantastic way to to show rounded thought and rounded ideas and and the way that people and systems interact to, to make things happen. My next one like that afterwards was a biography written about Patton, Rommel, and Montgomery, hmm. which was a fascinating way to, to read about the closing couple of years of, of World War II. And then most recently, I read one uh, that was very well done that interlaced um, Malcolm X and, and Dr. King. And of course, being here in Omaha, the birthplace right. of Malcolm X, was um, was super fascinating, and and it was it was just 
really well done. And, and I learned a lot um, about both men and, and about, about the movement for, for awareness and, and, and race. And, and yeah, that was a great read. Very cool. Good deal. Yes, that's awesome. Well, we certainly appreciate you joining us today. Do you have any questions or anything for us or, or anything else that uh, you would like to think would help our listeners in any way? Well, I wish you luck on editing. Um, <laughs> let's see. There are doorbells. There was Husky wine. There was It'll be fine. See, David, the best part about my job is that Sarah does all the editing. So <laughs> I, just, I just get to come and talk to interesting people. Yeah. You know, it, it would be uh, it'd be interesting to to know what questions you get back from listeners and and how you you know and how how you address them both among the two of you who are knowledgeable um, and and you know and, and guests and so if you had if you had questions that had come up again and again I you know it'd be interesting to to talk about that get vaccinated yep generally and for SARS-CoV-2 and if you have, if I and I I will confess that that I was for a while a a booster skeptic on on SARS-CoV-2 uh, and then I I kept watching the rates and the the consequences of onward transmission and recognizing the fact that I end up occupationally near people of high risk all the time and and I I changed my mind and I I did uh, a couple of months ago get boosted so all of you get vaccinated and boosted wear masks do appropriate physical and social distancing and environmental and personal hygiene when appropriate. Be mindful of aggregate settings. Embrace the world, but do not do it pretending that there is not risk and know what that risk is. Because all of you are smarter than that and can make informed decisions about what you want to do and what you're willing to sacrifice for having done it. And just to emphasize what David was saying, uh, please ask questions. We're, we're happy to answer them or get them passed on to our guests so that they can answer them if you have something specific for them. And if this is something that you have an interest in, public health, epidemiology, and you want to try to link up with somebody that's knowledgeable in the area to get some advice, we're happy to do that as well. So uh, thank you, Dr. Brett Major, for joining us, David. It was it was great. I love your husky. It's a beautiful animal. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm glad since you saw him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you both. Yes. And for our listeners out there, join us on Twitter in the conversation, and we will catch you next time on Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.